who is a member of this church and who gets to sit under Pastor Joe's teaching and leadership. I, I am sad that my pastor is moving and transitioning to a new position. But as his friend, I know how passionate he is about mission. And I'm really excited for him to get this opportunity. In addition, as a Christian uh, who has benefited so much from G, uh, Joe's teaching and shepherding, I'm excited for all of these churches in India that are going to be blessed um, through the work that Joe is doing. And lastly, I'm also really excited to live in a time where to be a missionary in India doesn't mean that he has to pack up him and his family and move to India. He is actually him and Karen are going to stay right here in Chillicothe. Uh, and, and so we'll still get to um, be with him regularly. He just won't be up here in the pulpit preaching on a regular basis. So I'm excited about that. Um, but uh, this week, uh, if you are new, this is part in our service where we review one simple belief that we hold uh, as Christians every week and why it matters. Uh, and we're on the seventh week. Um, by the way, if you don't have one of these books, we do have more. That, so feel free to take one. It's over um, on the table under the sign that says Discipleship Resources. The only payment we ask is that you actually use it. Um, that's the main thing. So this week, we are asking the question, uh, what is God like? And, we, and we're going to be asking that for the next couple of weeks. But one of the important things to remember when we ask, what is God like, is this, that God alone in all of existence, God alone is uncreated. And therefore, God alone has no need. Now, what does that mean for us? It means this. God has and always will exist. Being the creator of all things, he has no creator himself. Being the sustainer of all things, he has no need for anything outside of his love, outside of himself, whether for life or for happiness. God alone is uncreated and God alone has no needs. Now, sometimes when I share this, it's shocking to people. What do you mean God doesn't need me? That seems harsh at first. But it, the more you think about it, the more you realize that this is really good news. Unlike human beings, when they say, they say I don't need you, um, that, that's a lie. We as human beings need other human beings. But when God says, I don't need you, that's not a dismissal because at the end of the day, he still invites us to be with him. So why does God invite us to be with him? to work with him if he doesn't need him? And the incredible answer to that question is because he wants us. God does not need us for anything, but he wants us as his children to be with him and to work with him, which is incredibly good news. Unlike human beings whose desires go up and down and all over the place, God is God. He is unchanging. Circumstances may change, but his desire for us, his enjoyment of us does not change. And so practically, real, real practically, one thing that that means is how many of you guys have ever really, really struggled with sharing the gospel because you're like, oh, I got to say this exactly right. Everyone's like, what if I mess this up? What if I say the wrong thing? Here's the encouraging thing. When you are sharing the gospel of Jesus with someone, you are not responsible for their salvation, Right? God doesn't need us to save anyone. When we share the gospel with someone, God does the work. He invites us to be part of that, much like a father or a mother would invite their kid to do some chore or task with them because they want to do it with them, not because they do it well, not because they need them to do it. 
In the same way, when we're sharing the gospel, I cannot tell you the amount of times I've walked away and go, well, that was awful. I don't think I could come to Jesus through what I just said. And yet, somehow, people do. And I ask them, I, I probe further, well, what is the gospel? And they repeat back to you things that I'm pretty sure I never said. <laughs> and they heard it anyways, because God can use anything. We're like, we're like the child who brought the, the loaf of bread and the fish, and God made a giant feast to feed thousands of people with. It's the same way. Right? And, and that is incredibly good news that God does not need us, but he wants us. So uh, with that, I want to dismiss you. If you are in third grade or younger, join Mr. Tony at the back for Children's Church today, uh, if you'd like. Um, everyone else, we are going to be in James chapter 3 today. So if you can be turning to that. Now, as I was reading through this text and thinking about it, um, I actually, one of the images that came into my mind for this text is physical therapy. How many of you guys in here have done physical therapy in the past? How many of you really enjoyed that experience? <laughs> Some of you, that's good. By the way, that's good. Sometimes in physical therapy, though, it is incredibly, incredibly painful. And you're left thinking, is this guy trying to help me or is he just enjoy my pain, right? Um, but, but if you know anything, you know that when your body is hurting and dysfunctional, your body's really good at adapting. And so if, if you have some sort of injury in your hip, your body can adapt and walk and feel fine. But then in physical therapy, what they're stretching you to do is use your body how it's meant to be used and it's weak and it gets sore really quickly and it hurts. And they're like, why can't I just do this, what I've been doing, right? And the answer to that is the, the physical therapist is trying to get you to heal what has been broken. And yes, it means pushing you way past your comfortable with and even hurting for a little bit for the purpose of healing. And so when we read James 3 today, uh, I got to be honest with you, it's, it's a hard message, right? It, if you let it, some of you may feel a little bit battered and bruised and limping at the end of this message. It is difficult. But what I want you to understand that that is not the end goal of this letter. The end goal is not to leave you beaten up and hurting. The end goal is to bring you the healing that only Jesus can bring. Um, so I want you to keep that in mind as we read this text today. Um, but if you are able, um, please stand with me as I read today's passage from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Uh, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea 
creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Father, I pray that we listen closely to your words, and even if it may hurt us temporarily, I pray that we listen and obey, and where we need to repent, we repent so that we might receive healing um, from the work of your son, Jesus. And I pray that this message would be a healing balm, that it would not leave us wounded, but that we would see the grace that you are offering for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So as a reminder, or if you weren't here last week, Joe preached one of the hardest passages, I think, in the New Testament to really grasp. Uh, It is dealing with the challenge that, okay, if you say that you are saved, but your life shows no evidence of it, you should go back and re-examine it because, well, why? Well, because if you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not impotent. He will change you. There will be evidence. Now, obviously, no Christian is perfect in this lifetime. That's something that Jesus will produce when he returns again. But there will be fruit. You have the Holy Spirit. He is working in you. And now we move on to this passage. And what James is showing us is he's showing us one of those fruits, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit begins to change our life. And that is in the way that we speak. Now, if you've been reading James and paying attention, this doesn't come out of nowhere. He spends a lot in chapter 1 talking about taming the tongue and bridling the tongue. Later on in James, he will continue to talk about the way that we speak. And if you read the whole Bible, you realize that the Bible talks a lot about what we say. In fact, it's incredibly important, right? Uh, It it says it again and again, and I'm actually going to bring up as we preach several of these verses, but it doesn't take long diving into Proverbs, diving into the Old Testament or the New Testament to see that the Bible seems to indicate what we say reveals what is in our hearts. It's one of the primary things that reveals what is in our hearts, it's our speech. Right? And that shouldn't be too surprising when we take a step back and look at the whole of Scripture and who our God is. Our God is a God of speech. He created all of creation simply by speaking it into existence. Alone out of all creation, by the way, that he did not speak into existence, as human beings whom he formed with his own hands. Everything else he spoke into being, right? And he reveals himself as he speaks to us through his word in the Old Testament, through his prophets, which became the written word as well. And so human beings who are made in his image are a creature of speech. It's one of the things that separates us from other parts of God's creation as we speak. Right? And it, then it should be no surprise then that one of the big effects of the fall of our separation from God is this great gift that God gave us, this powerful gift to become corrupted and to be used for evil. Right Now, what I'm not saying, I know that there's a lot of more new age teaching going around that people buy into this idea that you can speak things into existence. Just by saying things, you manifest them into reality. 
To that, we say, you're not God, right? You can't make things just by speaking them to being. But on the other hand, we don't want to make another mistake, right? Speech is powerful, as we just read in James. Speech has the ability to bring life and to tear life down. It is a wealth of life, a spring of life, right? Which we can build up our fellow brothers and sisters, or we can, we can um, use it to tear them down, depending on whether we submit our speech to God or we let our tongue be untamed, right? And that's what James is talking about here. But what I find interesting um, about this, and, and even humbling for me as, as the person preaching to you from the word, is the way that James begins. Look at this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Notice the pronoun there, we. What James is saying is, before I talk to you about your speech, you need to know that I am submitting to this teaching on speech. That if you are a teacher of the Bible, you need to understand that you will be judged with greater strictness. And we see that as we see Jesus' interactions with the teachers in his day. One of the things he says repeatedly is he, he says, you should know better, teachers. You're claiming to teach other people, and yet your lives do not show a consistency with what you teach. And so if you dare to teach the Bible, you need to understand that you do so knowing your life, the way you live, is going to be judged more strictly by what you teach than others. And that's a heavy burden. And that's something James himself submits to here. And when you read the rest of James, you realize just what a tall order this becomes. But you should know, even though that's where he begins, he is speaking to all Christians. All Christians are to submit our tongue to God. Because if not, our tongue is a powerful, powerful thing. Our speech is a powerful, powerful thing. Let's look at some of the ways that it is powerful and not used for the good. Um, the dangers, you could say, of its tongue that is untamed, that is unsubdued, unconquered. As we keep reading, we see this. For we all stumble in many ways, and if one does not stumble... Um, and what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So what it's saying here is that the tongue is difficult to tame. And in fact, if you could somehow tame it, then all the rest of your actions you could tame as well. But it's also drawing attention to this, that if what you say and what you speak is inconsistent with the way you live, you will face judgment for that. And that should make all of us pause, should it not? It is, it is really easy to be able to spot out the sins of others around us and to call out the sins of those around us. But the moment we begin to look inwardly, if we realize, hey, I'm still <laughs> committing these sins that I so quickly call out in others, that's something that is dangerous for us. Understand? Um, that's why sometimes when we're teaching on the Bible and it calls out some of the sins of our culture, obviously, some of the sins of our culture and every culture are the sexual sins. So it's one thing to stand up here and to tell you that, yes, the Bible commands that romantic sexual love be confined to a husband and a wife. That's true. It's true because what it was made for is to bring glory to Jesus' love for the church. So this is the way it is. And outside of that, it brings destruction 
and it brings death. And it's easy to call that out with the sins that we don't struggle with, right? But it's another thing to then say, what that means is that you, Christian, must not love anyone in this way except your husband or your wife. It means you not, must not bring other things into your life like pornography or even lustful thoughts or even uh, books or movies or shows that tempt you to de- to move this de- sexual romantic devotion to anyone except your spouse. That's a harder message, is it not? And so the ones who rightly call to repentance, those who are struggling with sexual sins, whether they are having sex with someone not their spouse, whether they're struggling with homosexuality or whatever, you need to make sure that this sin is not in your life. Like Jesus says that, um, yes, this is sin, but you know what else is sin? Looking at a woman with lust. Both are sinful. So is your speech filled with hypocrisy? If not, then maybe silence is better in that moment. But that leads to the question, well, how can we call people out of sin? All of us struggle. Well, yeah, let's sit with that discomfort for a little bit because James has more to say about that. But it's not just hypocrisy, right? As we keep reading, what we see is this. The ultimate problem with the way we speak comes in verse 10. Uh, Sorry, back up, verse 9. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Keep going. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. You know what the main problem with the way we speak is? It's this. We are speaking of our fellow human beings who are images of God. So hold that in your head for a second. Imagine all the ways you've spoken to and about people just this week. Maybe that's too long, just this weekend. Hold those in your head. Now do this. In your mind, picture instead of that person, Jesus. That's who you're talking to, and that's who you're speaking about. right? Because what the Bible says is they bear the image of God. Right? So, so imagine, for instance, someone shows you a picture of themselves, like a senior photos, wedding photos, whatever, a picture of themselves. And you look at it and you go, oh, that picture's ugly. Not you, not you, just the picture. Is that going to go over well? And you you may have reason. The picture doesn't reflect you well, but it's still incredibly insulting, is it not? And it's more than that, though, because image in the Bible, by the way, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the reason you were not supposed to make a graven image, an idol, is because God already made him an image of himself. So this image is more than just merely a picture. It's meant to represent something about God, his character, his authority on earth, that we as human beings were created to be that representation of his authority and his character and his person in the flesh. So then to tear down an image is kind of like, imagine living in medieval or ancient times and a king puts up a statue of himself. And you come up and you're like, that statue is ugly, and you tear it down. That's not just going to be taken as, oh, I don't like the art. That's going to be taken as rebellion against the king, is it not? That's what we're talking about here. Every single thing you say about or to another person, you need to realize that in some way that's reflecting what you think about 
God in whose image they are. Now, we can recognize, of course, that the image has become corrupted in the fall, and we can point out sin in the way that that image has become corrupted, but all the time we need to know that they are still reflecting God's image, and that should change the way that we speak to and about our fellow human beings, okay? And that's the main tragedy of the way we speak. That is why the teachers held to such high standards is because they are speaking to, not just about God's image and to God's image, but they are actually speaking what should be God's word. And so they need to make very, very sure with diligent study and careful prayer that what they are actually teaching is what God is actually saying. That's what's so harmful about sin as image bearers of God. Whenever we sin, we are lying about who God is. We are maligning his character. And so how much more amplified is that as someone dares to be a teacher of God's word and yet teaches what is God is not actually saying? So James gives us caution and pause. And so then he goes on and he talks about how hard the tongue is to subdue. And that's why I put tongue busting as the title. The image that I want you guys to have is someone taming a wild horse. So imagine this back in the time. Well, I think some people still do today, but you have these wild horses who've never been ridden before. What do you do? Well, you get someone who's a little bit crazy, have them jump on the horse, and they hold on until the horse stops bucking. And you just wear this thing down. I'm not a horse expert. I apologize to horse experts if I get it slightly wrong. But that's the main objective, to wear them down. But you can't stop there. Otherwise, they keep doing that every time someone gets on. Eventually, you also have to earn their trust and tame them so that when you get on them, they still use their power and their speed for what they should be, but it's not wild and untamed in a way that's going to hurt you or fuck you off as the rider, right? And that's the image here for the tongue, that the tongue needs to be tamed because left on its own wild, all that force and all that power is going to be used in a way that is destructive and hurtful. It could be if it were tamed, if it were bridled, it could be used for good, to encourage, to uplift, to even confront sin in a way that is good and holy, right? The New Testament is full of these one another commands where we should lift each other up, encourage, exhort, even occasionally rebuke, right? All for good. The tongue is powerful and can be used for good if it is submitted. But here is our problem. How hard is it to tame the tongue? And so James uses these metaphors, just like a spark can light a whole forest on fire. Or just like a little rudder can direct the direction of a giant ship. Just like this, a tongue can steer the whole course of someone's life. What you say can affect your relationships what you do, how you are seen, the way that you reflect God, all of these things directed by such a little part of your body. And so then the, the, the question is, okay, how do we tame our tongue now, right? Because up to this point, that should be the question, okay, the tongue it can be a really powerful force for good or evil, but it must be tamed. So how do we tame it? And this is actually where James has a little bit of bad news for us before it becomes good. Because he says this, every single kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Like you watch Disney movies and you're like, how on earth did they get a 
big old whale to do what they wanted it to do for the shot. <laughs> right? Or an elephant. How on earth do you get an elephant to perform for a circus? That's crazy. This thing could stomp, the, stomp us. Why is it listening to us? And what you see is that originally human beings were made with authority over animals. Yes, the fall corrupted that. And so now our relationship with animals is broken. Uh, we're no longer um, necessarily ruling over them for their good and our good. And so there's this resistance and this fear from the animals that shows up. But we still have authority even though that part of our nature has been corrupted by the fall, it's still there in part, right? And so you have even the craziest animals we can domesticate. I mean, think about the first person who domesticated cows, these giant, powerful animals with horns, right? If any of you has ever worked on a farm and met a bull, some of my most terrifying jobs when I was in high school, we had to catch cows so that we could stamp them and ship them to keep track of their health. Um, and so what you do is they walk through this gate and you have these bars that you close as soon as they stick their neck out so that they're stuck there. Their shoulders can't go through. I remember the first time a bull came up to this thing. This bull, like I couldn't put my arms around its neck and I'm like, how, I, uh, how, <laughs> how do you want me to stop this thing? Because if it gets through, I am, I am going to be nowhere near here, right? <laughs> and thankfully, the first time the farmer who I was working for did it for me, he's like, just like this. I'm like, yeah, that's simple. Okay. <laughs> I want nothing to be near this, this ginormous animal whose neck is bigger than my whole body when I scrunch up, right? That's crazy. And yet we found a way to domesticate these powerful animals. What James says here, though, is nothing. No human being. Look at this. No human being can tame the tongue. Now, if you try to do this, you'll understand quickly why. Because here's the standard. Because obviously there has been one human being who is also God who's tamed the tongue, and he's the standard. So first off is this. Does your speech match your actions? Okay. Can you do that? Well, we're already in trouble. That's just step one. Step two. Is what you say truthful? Is it not exaggerating? Is it nothing but the truth? The whole truth? Well, that's, our, that's already hard as well. And is what you say truthfully seasoned with grace? Here's what I found with Christians. You get one of two extremes. You get us who are very much about the truth. I tell it exactly like it is. And you get other people who are like, no, you want to speak with grace. Right? And, and usually... They kind of look at the others like, oh, you're too cowardly to tell people the truth, or you're just a jerk. Um, and, and both have a little bit of truth in there, right? The point is this. If you think that you are telling people the truth and nothing but the truth, but you're not doing it with grace and love, then you're not actually speaking the truth. Well, on the other hand, if you think that you are speaking in love and you're not telling people the whole truth, if you're not cunning, confronting them with sometimes hard realities, you are not loving them. Imagine a person, for instance, who is driving headfirst towards a cliff that they don't see, and you can say, well, I don't want to tell them that they're about to crash and die because that would just be me. And that's ridiculous. But that's what we do sometimes when people are deep in their sin. We say, you know what? I, I don't want to be mean to them. I don't want to come across this harsh. No, you tell them that your sin is leading you down a path of self-destruction. 
And if you do repent, and this is why it's loving, God is there and he is quick to offer mercy and forgiveness, grace and healing. Truth and love, both. Is your speech always without hypocrisy, always filled with truth and love, both? And, the, and, and if it is those, that's hard enough, but that's not all that the Bible says about speech. In fact, it also says, and do you speak at the right time? And only as much as needs to be said. The Bible is full of warnings not to overspeak. In fact, James just warned us that. We must be quick to listen, but slow to speak. Right? And Proverbs warns us that even a fool, when they keep silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Proverbs 17, 28. Right? And, and elsewhere, it, it talks about how um, Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. In other words, this, close your mouth more. <laughs> Stop speaking as much. Be silent. Listen. Can you do that? Are you quick to speak and slow to listen? In which case, that's not just a personality thing. That is a sin issue, a heart issue. Because one of the things that the Bible repeatedly says, repeatedly warns us, is that what comes out of our mouth is actually a reflection of our heart. Right? And so our speech is not just a quirk of our personality. It's not just who they are. No, it is a reflection of our heart more than our personality. When we can't keep silent, when we can't listen, it shows that we in our heart don't care what other people say. We only care what we say. When our words are harsh, they're not seasoned with grace. It's not just because we're the type of person who tells it how it is. It's because we have not let grace sink in. It means that we have not become aware of how much we are dependent on grace, on how much we sin, and how much God is gracious to us. When we don't tell the truth, it's not just because we want to be kind. It's not because we're gentle. It's because we do not have the courage to love people, to truly tell them what they need to hear for their own good, even if the cost is to temporarily damage our relationship with them. Do we love them more than we love our relationship with them? What we say and how we say it is a reflection of the heart. And the bad news is no human being can on their own change their heart. But notice closely the words that the Bible uses. No human being. It's not nothing, no one. It is no human being. The Bible is very specific and intentional. Why? Because this leaves open the one being that contains the tongue. If you think back all the way to Job, one of the images of God, when, when Job questioned God's and God's like, okay, I'll answer you if that's what you really want. Uh, I, I always love that moment. Job is, is sitting there. Um, and and to the, for the most part, he's doing really well in the midst of suffering. God, I have these questions, and he's so whiny, right? I say whiny, but he's far less whiny than I would have been in those circumstances, right? Um, and then God finally shows up and goes, okay, I'll answer you. Brace yourself, and, and you know it's going to be fun after that. 
And one of the images he uses is like, can you tame the Leviathan? And so the, this Leviathan, whether it's real creature or not, it's this, it's this giant sea creature, almost a, a sea dragon-like creature, whether mythological or whether it's talking about some crazy giant sea creature. But what God says is, can you tame the Leviathan? Have you, like me, put a, a, a hook in its nose until it submitted to you? That's so what you get this image of God is that God can subdue and tame anything in his creation. Nothing is more powerful than him. So everything eventually submits to him. And guess what that leaves open for us? That includes the tongue. You see, it, it, I said earlier that Jesus is our example. He is our model for what a perfectly submitted tongue is like. And to understand that fully, that means whenever Jesus spoke, he always spoke the truth fully and completely. He always spoke it in love and grace. He always did it perfect timing. He didn't speak out of place, but he did spoke only what was needed and only in a way that would best lead them to repentance out of love for them. But he also didn't speak. One of the best examples of Jesus's speech is when he is being arrested and beaten for what he is not guilty of. And it says that Jesus was silent like a sheep being led to the slaughter. At any point, Jesus could have spoken up and walked away free. At any point, he could have spoken to the Father. It says, it tells us, he could have called down angels to rescue him. But do you know what that would have meant? You know what Jesus speaking, even though it would have been true, even though it would have been fair, even though it would have been correct, what it would have meant for us is that we would have been doomed to suffer for our own sins. And so out of love, Jesus remained silent. That's the example. That's the perfection that we must live up to. And so we realize if all Jesus had given us was an example, we would be in deep, deep trouble. There is no way we could ever live up to that. But that's not all he left for us. You see, by Jesus living a life as a human being, never once sinning but living it perfectly, and yet still taking the punishment of our sin onto himself, dying, in, in a gruesome, horrific way, three days later, rising again to life. What that means is that we no longer have to bear up to the perfect law, that Jesus has done that for us, that he has taken our sin off of us, our unloving, untruthful, hypocritical speech, and he has put that on himself. And then he has taken his perfect speech, always spoken truthfully and in love and put that on us if we put our faith in Jesus. And he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just take away the punishment from sin. He saves us from sin itself. Because if we're reading the Bible, we realize how destructive, undesirable this sin is. But it has us enslaved to us. All we can do is sin, even if we no longer want to do it, we're enslaved to sin. And so what Jesus does is he frees us not only from the consequences of sin, but from sin itself. And so while we cannot conquer our tongue, he begins to conquer it for us. Through his Holy Spirit, the great Leviathan tamer finally begins to subdue our tongue as well. Not perfectly in this life, never perfectly, but day by day he begins to make us more like Jesus. And he begins to make us more and more mature. And at the end goal, when Jesus returns, he makes us full and complete 
and perfect, right? And that is the end goal for us. We don't have to continue lashing out and harming the people around us with our speech. God will submit our tongues and use it where it was used to tear down people made in the image of God. It is now used to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is now used to praise and thank the God who subdued our tongue, who took our sin and our place. It is now used to uplift, sometimes rebuke and encourage out of love. All of those things, God begins to use it because just like that wild animal, like that horse, right, is moved just by a simple bit, God can, with our tongues, move us, move our whole way of life, our whole relationships and what we do with our speech. And, and, and you'll find that. You'll find over time you begin to say things at the right time, in the right way, in the right moment. And you're like, why did I say that? Like a year ago, that is not what I would have said. But I, but I said this thing, and it blessed my brothers and sisters in Christ. And those moments, by the way, are not you. It is God, the great tongue buster, the great subduer, who in his graciousness uses our tongue. Like I said in the beginning, does God need our speech? No. God can encourage our brothers and sisters without us. God can give them uh, encouragement to their heart when they are sad or when they need extra strength. Uh, he can rebuke them all on his own. But because he likes us, because he enjoys us as his children, he invites us into that work. And that's what James is moving towards in this talk. One of the fruits of a changed life is a changed and subdued tongue. Right? So this is my encouragement to, for you this week. Do not treat your sins of the tongue as just a personality thing. Because it's so easy to justify our own sins to ourselves. Instead, what I encourage you to do is to read this text this week and to honestly, before God, say this, say this. God, how am I sinning with my tongue? How is my tongue still wild and unsubmitted? And where do I need to repent before you? And then when he brings that into mind, when he brings you things that you have said that you shouldn't have, harsher than they should have been, uh, or gossipy when other people weren't around, immediately I encourage you, repent and receive God's grace, which he is quick to offer and to give. And what happens is, as we begin to experience the grace of God more and more and more, we'll notice how he is changing us over time. Yes, at first it will be hurtful because you realize how much harm you've done with your tongue. But then you'll also begin to see how much he's actually improved you over time. Uh, this is one thing I always encourage my students. Sometimes Teenagers are incredibly hard on themselves. I'm like, how has God grown you this year? And they're like, oh, I don't think he has. I still struggle in this and this and this. It's like, okay. But legitimately think about this past year. How are you different from the year before? And then when you space it out that long, you realize, actually, God has changed me quite a lot. I am not the same idiot I was a year ago, I can tell you. I'm not the same foolish level of foolishness uh, and and. I'm not even the same level of brashness and, and harshness. God has tempered my tongue and has given me wisdom. And that is not something I could do on my own. And that's the hope that I want to give you as well. So what does that mean for us? 
we need to recognize the dangers of an untamed tongue. We need to realize that we cannot tame it on our own, but we need God to tame it. Tame it. But we also need to realize with hope that a tongue that has been submitted to God, that experiences the fruit of the Holy Spirit, can, where it used to cause harm, cause healing and good, and it, and it, it can show love to those around us in a way that you've never experienced before. And that should give us incredible hope and joy and thanksgiving to our God. So with that, I want to close us in prayer as we continue to worship through song. Father, I just want to thank you for doing what we could not, for defeating sin, for nailing it to the cross, ending its punishment and its power over us. And I pray that you would show us how you're already using our tongues for healing where it was used for destruction. I pray that you show us where we cause destruction, you bring grace and healing anyways, and help us be moved to worship you out of graciousness for the healing that you continue to bring. In Jesus' name, amen.